Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest voxcasting either side of the breach. This evening's story is one of execution, retribution, and guilt. It takes place in the town of Stranglehold, a frontier town and port ruled by a corrupt and cruel magistrate. But rebellious sentiment is growing, and things are about to come to a head. I hope you enjoy The Magistrate of Stranglehold, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Sally's Seaside Rope Shop. All the hangmen in Malifaux buy their rope from Sally's. It's tough, flexible and perfect for tying a knot that won't let you down. They say Jack Daw himself was hanged with a rope from Sally's. So don't leave us hanging. Come on down to Sally's. The Magistrate of Stranglehold by Matthew Farah. Jackie, Jackie, Jack Daw hanging on the tree. I asked him for his secrets, but he would not speak to me. The streets of Stranglehold were empty when the fog began to creep up from the river, as though it had waited until all the people were behind their doors before it felt brave enough to come sliding in and softly smother the night in white. It thickened the air until all the moonlight could hope for, was to turn it a slightly lighter grey. The angular wooden buildings dissolved into soft-edged blurs, diluted the few outdoor lanterns to little blots of struggling yellow light, and deadened the sound out of the air itself. No night birds, no soft sound of water from the river, no creak and bump from the wharves or boats, nor much sound from the houses either. But then stranglehold folk had learned to keep quiet at night, the magistrate's men had seen to that. Quiet the town was, but it was not dead. Stranglehold was alive like a meadow beneath a layer of snow, lifeless to the eye, but full of hidden pockets and nests of warmth and movement. It was alive like a forest, silent to the ear, but with a maze of roots connecting invisibly beneath the soil. The stranger to town might not see it, the man behind the solitary lit window in the magistrate's manor would not bother to notice it. But tonight, after so many nights, the stillness was anticipation. In the storeroom behind the dock supervisor's office, out by the fog-wrapped wharves and moored river barges, crates were rearranged to expose a trunk whose paperwork said it was being held for a shipment in three weeks' time. The papers were false. The rifles and bullets packed inside were very real. They glinted in the torchlight. Oh, mercy, said a deep and chuckling voice outside the window when the trunk opened. 
Nobody inside the room heard it. In the smithy the forge was banked and leaked only a dim and sullen red light. It was enough for the smith, his son and his daughter, to unwrap a dozen fighting hatchets and short sabres from their hiding places. As they quietly laid the weapons out, a gaunt figure leaned against the outside of the forge doors, pressing a cold white cheek against the fog-dampened wood, brushing the latch with bloody fingertips, and cooing softly every time she heard the scrape of a whetstone along a cutting edge. In the jumble of buildings between Contract Street and Wharf Street, the youngsters carried messages. They flitted from door to door, giving tiny coded knocks that were barely more than scratches against the wood. Two, then two, then three. Get ready. They ran on the exhilaration of danger and adrenaline. They knew the magistrate had men patrolling Stranglehold in the night, and they might yet get caught, so fear kept their senses extra keen. None of them quite set eyes on the great mournful silent man who stood like a block of basalt in the middle of Contract Street. But every one of them who passed that way veered around the spot where he stood, without quite knowing why. Faint laughter wafted across the thatch and split-shake rooftops. Cupped in its riverbed, the town waited. And here, in the tiny squeak of the latch on the magistrate's gate, came the moment it had been waiting for. Jackie, Jackie, Jack, door hanging neath the moons, as patient as the grave he was and colder than the tomb. No one can say I've done any wrong, Crabtree told himself, stumbling a little on the broken cobbles of the square. How could they? Who traduces me like that? And yet, and yet. I shall be free of it all tonight. I'm sure that's what he would say. He took a few tentative steps away from the black iron gates of the manor, peering around him and then up to the top story. He could still see the glow of the lit window, his master's library. He would be brooding in the great leather chair, done with reading by now, well into his evening brandy. Crabtree had not dared creep out of his room downstairs until he'd been sure of that. He turned his back on the manor, and looked up at the looming timber platform that dominated the town square. My conscience needs no clearing, none. For what is my wrong? No wrong. I do no wrong. I do not suffer. I am not guilty. But this will clear me nevertheless. No, this will clear me. He barely realised he was speaking aloud. His left hand clutched at the breast of his coat keeping the cloth-wrapped bundle tucked into it from rattling or clinking. The town gallows would have been big enough to end a dozen lives at a stroke with room to spare, but there was only one arm and noose. And there was the block, and the post for garroting, and another for shooting, and the egg-shaped scaffold for stretching and beheading, and the crushing slab. The magistrate believed in only one execution at a time, to fix the minds of the crowd on what they were seeing and what it meant for them to cross him. But he liked variety in how those executions were carried out. For a moment he heard laughter and voices from the gallows, coming through a swirl on the fog as though on a phantom breeze. Crabtree froze in place, moisture from the fog beading among his scraggled grey whiskers. Ah... Uh, 
Gertrude swallowed. Are you there, Jack? Of course I should hear such tricks of sound, he told himself, as he struck out into the grey limbo away from the gates. I am an educated man. I am a man of sheltered breeding and sensitive nerves. A night like this will burden me. Of course my ears will conjure fancies. His mutterings trailed behind him as he tripped and scampered across the cobbles and onto the wooden corduroy surface of Contract Street. After a moment he was a blur, then gone into the fog. The half-naked and emaciated figure perched on the roof corner swung its bare feet and turned its head after him, for all the world as though it could see him through the hangman's hood that the noose held in place over its head. Jackie, Jackie, Jack, door, noose around his neck. A raven came and kissed his cheek and gave his eye a peck. Why are you doing this then? Loomis demanded, and then glared when Fish waved at him to lower his voice. If we're making our move tonight, what's it matter? But he quieted just the same. How do you know we can trust him? I... I decided... Fish made the opposite gesture now. Crabtree's voice was a tiny croak they could barely hear. You decided to betray your master the magistrate, Red Kate said evenly. Start with that. You did. I decided to betray my master the magistrate because... He stopped. Because I could not live in fear of him any longer, he wanted to say. Or... Because I could not stand to stand by and watch his sins, he could have said. Or simply, because he is an evil man, and I found the courage to help free the town of him. All those would have been lies, though, and Crabtree had decided, without realising he had decided, to have done with those. Because I saw him, he said. And the others frowned and looked at each other. Him said Crabtree. Him! Not the magistrate, Fish hazarded. I see him every day, Crabtree muttered, for my sins. The manor is hell, and he is its devil. So who did you see who frightened you more than the devil? Red Kate asked. Him. I saw him. Jack Daw. There was a beat of silence. Fish stroked his shaggy moustache. Red Kate kept staring at Crabtree. She tugged at the bright shawl that she was nicknamed for, adjusting it over her head and around her throat, hiding the marks the magistrate's men had left on her on her wedding day. Everyone assured her that her husband was young and strong and almost certainly still alive in the manor's dungeons, but she didn't really believe them. Loomis swung his pale, bony, pox-scarred face back and forth to look at the others. "'That's what they call that man on the hanging tree, ain't it?' he asked. "'What's he got to do with our town? How did a dead man travel three days ride Malifaux City to Stranglehold?' "'No,' said Red Kate. "'That's where he was. And then they found him gone. Not just cut down. The rope was gone. And the patch of corpse wax on the ground underneath him.' Not even any mark on the bow where the rope had been. More than a year ago. They looked at her. Record didn't print it, but 
that Breeshide Tatler did, she explained. Red Kate was a reader. He's been seen since, Crabtree whimpered. Been seen all over. They see him strolling the old Spire Road in Malifaux City, with the hood and noose still on. They say his feet only just brush the ground as if he's still hanging. They've seen him in little contract towns that don't even have names. Up in the snow country, dancing along the mine trails with crooked men following behind. They've seen him in the bayou. Travellers have met him on the road. He was rocking back and forth. I must open the magistrate's letters so I can sort them for him. I see the reports. Jack Dorr. He wanders now. He wanders and men fight and die and towns burn and never born hunt. And you saw him, Fish asked, here, in town. It was real, wailed Crabtree. I am not mad. I was carrying a ledger across the manor grounds and I dropped it when I saw the phantasm. And when I'd seized it back and run to the house, I saw a print across it. The print of an emaciated human foot. Jack Dorr is here. This is why you came to me with your plan, growled Fish. His hard Balkan accent giving the words an edge. Because of this dead man from the stories. I reread all the letters I'd filed for the magistrate about him, Crabtree said. He is an instrument of punishment. I'm sure of it. I... No, I have helped the magistrate for many years. He stared down at his hands. Jack Dorr gave me a warning. He wants me to redeem myself. Men who take the chance he gives them are spared. Those who spurn it hang on to the tree in his place. Told your dad, did he? Fish asked. I heard him whisper. I couldn't hear the words. But... But I read the letters. I read what folks say about him. I believe it. I am frightened of him. He came out here on some traveller's tale, Loomis burst out. Because of this, you trust him. No, said Kate. Because of these. She pulled on the corner of the cloth bundle Crabtree had smuggled out of the manor. After a moment, the wrapping came free, and its contents clanked onto the tabletop. The magistrate's personal keys, she said with satisfaction. The ones that are always hanging up there on his belt when he's gloating over us all from the edge of the gallows. And even with these we don't trust him, said Fish. You don't stay in the manor and tell us to come to the gates. You unlock them. We all arrive. Maybe we find all that's happened is the magistrate now has all his enemies neatly assembled in front of a locked gate. Hmm? So we have him bring the keys out to us. Then we don't have to trust him. Well, Loomis began. No, Fish cut him off. We're glad to have you join us, boy, but you talk too much. No more talking. People are waiting. So if you are not happy with this, stay behind, hmm? You want to walk away? Loomis glared at Fish, his angular Adam's apple working up and down. Man had my daddy hunkers and nothing but lies. And then took our farm, he said. Man has to pay. I'm with you. And they can hang me for it and be damned. So be it, said Fish. And suddenly he was smiling. He pushed his chair back from the table. On with your coats, my friends, and light your torches. 
Time justice was served, but... And he wagged a finger at them. No more talk of hanging now. Too much talking. Maybe Jack Daw will come punish us, eh? He chuckled as he pulled on his coat and swung the door open. Jackie, Jackie, Jack Daw, swinging on his rope. Twas dying took away his fear, but living killed his hope. He capered across the rooftops, dangling toes barely brushing the shingles, leaping and whirling with his arms spread wide, clutching handfuls of fog out of the night air. Voices came and went around him, etching the air with lies and secrets and terrible confessions, wrapping his bare skin against the chill in ribbons of dark and miserable whisper. He could hear every word breathed across the whole town, the ones they spoke to each other and the ones that just boiled in their heads, and all the words made a tune to which Jack Daw twisted and jerked and danced, danced, danced. The gear craned her head and watched him pass over her. Her white shift clung to her, and her thick black hair hung down in a lank black cascade, a patch of utter dark against the fog. She looked at the tips of her fingers, startling crimson, put them in her mouth and tasted her own blood. They had bled ever since she tried to claw away the bricks they'd walled her up with. They had not stopped drooling flesh blood even after she had died. She stared at them, as if she were seeing them bleed for the first time, and then she threw back her head and shrieked. The scream rippled out through the town. Lanterns flickered, the fog itself seemed to tremble in the air. Montressa had walked the length of Contract Street with slow funeral tread, and now stood before the great gallows. He was staring up at the magistrate's manor, at that single lit window. Like Legea's hair, his suit made a shape of pure blackness that the pale fog could not seem to dilute. His enormous hands strong enough to crack a skull with a simple flex of the fingers, clenched and unclenched. Things were in motion. Jack Daw was dancing on his rope. Montressa would witness it all, as he witnessed everything. It was his curse. Jackie, Jackie, Jack Daw came calling in the night. He told me he was watching me and bade me douse the light. Fish and Red Kate walked side by side through the fog, and the people of Stranglehold came out of the dark and the fog to join them. The wharf men came with guns and boat hooks, and a dozen lads from the smithy and brew house walked behind the smith's daughter, who held a lantern on a pole to guide them. At Two Dray Road they met the farmers from the west side hillsteads, carrying rifles and torches of their own. They joined with silent nods or grim handshakes and fell in behind. Townspeople came out of the cottages and boarding houses jumbled around Middle Alley in ones and twos that became groups. The groups merged into a mass, walking beneath burning torches, not speaking. Men and women, grey-haired or fresh-faced. Some had tied hoods low over their heads or bandanas around their faces. Others went defiantly bareheaded. They carried pistols and knives, rifles and lumbermen's axes, hammers and cudgels. Two thick-bearded hillmen lugged a trunk full of clay jugs of overproof moonshine that would burn ferociously once it splashed. The magistrate's keys clinked softly in Fisher's hand. A torch blazed in Kate's. 
By the time the crowd was crossing the square, everyone knew that this had gone too far to stop. There were too many for the watch to ignore, so many that nobody would dare back down and run. A tipping point had been reached, for better or worse. Crabtree was half a dozen steps behind Fish and Kate, unarmed and staring about him pop-eyed, moving with a cringing, skipping walk that just barely kept up with the crowd. He glanced at the people around him, but nobody met his eyes. "'Did you hear it?' he kept asking. "'I heard a scream, a woman's scream. "'It was a shriek that chilled my blood. "'Did none of you hear it? "'I am not mad. "'I am a man of tender nerves, but I am sane. "'And I heard a scream. "'Listen to me!' "'But nobody did. "'Crabtree had lived in Stranglehold for years, "'but its people were still strangers to him. "'He moaned and clutched at his head, lost in the crowd. "'He was sure he had heard a scream.' And now he was sure he could hear whispering. And then they were there. Jackie, Jackie, Jack Daw knew all my dreams and fears. He told me what he saw in them and drank up all my tears. The magistrate of Stranglehold stood on his front steps behind his tall iron gates. His bloated moon of a face was twisted in a sneer. He had on an embroidered nightshirt that hung to his ankles. He had pulled boots and a coat on over it. He cradled a rifle in his hands. Crabtree recognized the silver scrollwork. It was a collector's piece the magistrate had seized after he'd taken a fancy to it and trumped up a charge on which to execute the man who had owned it. "'Very good, little mice,' he roared, and the sound of his voice was enough to make the crowd ripple backwards. "'But you won't dare lay a hand on me. Not one of you. Not a man here has the spine to step forward to my gates. He let out a great coughing laugh. That is just as well, because not a man among you is strong enough to force those gates. And even so, I'll shoot down any who tries. Hoofbeats came echoing out of the streets around the square, and the magistrate's yellow teeth showed in the torchlight. And now I've got some men here to show you back to your holes, you stupid little mice. Your leaders I'll hang. The rest of you I'll think about. But even if I have to set the lot of you swinging, there are plenty in Malifaux City who'll be willing to come out and work the wharves. So run from my cats, little mice, and maybe I'll leave some of you alive. On that last word he fired a shot into the air. The horses behind the crowd neighed and whinnied as the magistrate's black-hooded watchmen hefted whips and sabres. Crabtree could hear them laughing. And then the laughter came from somewhere else. Jackie, Jackie, Jack Daw knew all my dreams and fears. He told me what he saw in them and drank up all my tears. Jack Daw came sailing out of the fog through the line of horsemen and over the heads of the crowd. He twisted and kicked in the air, as though he'd just been dragged off the ground and into the hanging tree, even though the rope around his neck simply snaked in the air, like a piece of seaweed drifting in a cross-current. His scrawny hands opened and closed, and his bare feet twitched in the air. With weird clarity, Crabtree could see mud caked on their soles. Snarling an oath, one of the magistrate's riders spurred his terrified horse forward, 
and leveled a pistol at Jack's chest. The bagged head turned in his direction, and the whole crowd heard whispering emanate from him, as though it was spilling out of the fog and right into their own ears. The rider yelled and fired, but the shot went wild, and the next minute the man tumbled off his rearing, plunging horse. There was a shout from the crowd, and a knot of townspeople closed on the stunned watchman before he could rise. Overhead, Jack Dorr laughed as a long whip lashed out from another watchman and wrapped around his wrist. His body was emaciated, his skin waxy and slack, but a single tug of his arm brought the man flying off his horse before he had the chance to anchor the whip handle to his own saddle. A moment later, he too was buried under a knot of people, and more dead came out of the fog. Two watchmen urged their mounts forward to rescue their comrades and were dragged down out of their saddles by clutching grey hands. A third slashed his sabre down into the neck of the corpse that was reaching for him, only to have a twisted shoulder and jerk the hilt out of his hand. The man yelled as cold fingers gripped his arm, and seconds later crashed to the cobbles as his horse ran out from under him. Now the watchmen were caught between their dead enemies and their live ones. One cracked his whip trying to force the crowd back, and was answered by the crack of a pistol that toppled him to the ground. Boat hooks and axes flashed in the torchlight as two more went down, and the screams of men and horses rose above the hammer of hoofs as the last few watchmen found gaps in the line and hurtled away in the dark. Red Kate turned her back on the carnage in the square and stared into the magistrate's dull red face and sharp black eyes. She plucked the keyring from Fish's hand. Your Honour was right, she said. No man will touch the gates. No man needs to. The lock clanked open. The magistrate's rifle cracked, but Kate had no idea where the shot went. She ran for him, skirts flapping and torch flaring, stealing herself for the next shot, but it never came. Red Kate's hearing filled with whispers, groping at her thoughts and making her stumble, and Jack Dorr dropped out of the air. The rifle went off again as he came down, but it didn't seem to do anything. Jack bore the magistrate over, clawing at his face. That great voice bawled for help as the whispers that surrounded Jack like a cloud of flies turned into chuckles and cackles. Kate dodged around the writhing shapes and up to the top step. The front door to the manor stood ajar, but it was still so heavy that slamming it back open with her shoulder almost knocked the breath out of her. Then she was in the manor's front hall, the battle in the square muffled as the doors swung closed again. Her torchlight gleamed off the cabinets of crystalware, the swords and gilt frames of the walls, the statuary and the polished gremlin skulls. She had no idea where Crabtree was, but the dungeon door couldn't be hard to find, and she had the key. She ran on deeper into the manor, her boot heels thudding in the thick, soft rugs. Jackie, Jackie, Jack Daw, whispering to the breeze. I begged him for his silence, but he laughed to hear my pleas. Crabtree couldn't get up off his knees. He half crawled forward across the cobbles, staring about him. The nightmarish flickering light of the torches that bobbed to and fro in the chaos, or lay guttering on the ground, was only fitting for what was unfolding. The dead who had followed Jack Dorr out of the fog had started with the magistrate's watchmen, but had not stopped with them. 
The mob that had come to punish the magistrate for his crimes against the living had become prey for the dead. Trapped between the high iron fence of the manor and a closing circle of sneering, jabbering corpses. Loomis was at the front of the fray, rocking his body back and forward in time to the heavy swings of his double-bitted lumber axe. Although we'd stroke parted dead flesh like rotten wood, he was being forced back, step by step. Fish was barking out Serbian curses and cramming shells into his scattergun. Some of the crowd had pushed through the gates after Red Kate, but Jack Dor had gripped the rope around his neck and was swinging it like a lash, trapping and snaring them in the gateway. A woman in white stood behind the line of the dead and the mad, and when she spread her arms and screamed, the battling townspeople quailed and the invaders pressed in harder. Crabtree moaned, paralyzed. Going to their aid would be death, but he could not bring himself to flee. He looked about him again and saw the great black-suited giant climb down from where he'd been sitting on the edge of the gallows. Crabtree raised a beseeching hand, but Montressa silently, sadly shook his head and reached down for him. And inside the manor, flames were rising. Jackie, Jackie, Jack, door, see him swing and sway, and once he whispers in your ear, you'll go with him on his way. She had been stupid to hope. Kate wept and laughed as she walked back through the manor trailing the torch behind her along the rugs, against the wood and through the drapes. Flame leapt from it along dry cloth and varnished wood. It seemed the manor wanted to burn. She had found him. He had been strapped to a great wooden X like the one in the square. He had been in pieces. The wedding ring, twin to hers, still on his finger. Stupid. Stupid to hope. She didn't look around, not even when the dragging, shuffling footsteps got so close they were practically treading on her heels. Let them walk. Let them burn. The spark that had carried her here was as dead as the magistrate who lay sprawled on the steps. Kate stopped in the manor doorway, staring out over the square. They came past her, the ones from the cells. The ones who had lain there motionless when she'd thrown the dungeon door open, and had come to life in the light of the torch as they'd heard a call echoing through the manor. Dressed in prison uniforms, or in rags, or naked, into the night they went with the magistrate's marks livid on their flesh. The burns from the electric chair, the rope scars, the deep grooves where restraints had held them down to stretcher beds in their cells, screaming for water and help. Kate squeezed her eyes shut. The hot tears filled them as the flames behind her scorched her shawl and her hair. Jackie, Jackie, Jack, door comes leading his parade, and he dances and he laughs to see the mischief that he's made. Crabtree batted feebly at the enormous fist that gripped the front of his coat. No, he wailed. No, please keep them away. His eyes bulged as he saw the dead walk out of the manor. Every man and woman in that corpse march he could name, even now. He could remember their mock trials, whether they had raged or pleaded, what the magistrate had gloatingly had him write on their warrants, 
and now he was sure. Every one of them was staring at him. No, he said again. I know my sins. Please, I paid for them. I brought the keys. I brought about his punishment. Please, please be just. The man's long, mournful face did not move. His eyes were large and deep, dark as the river on a motionless night. Crabtree saw no anger or lunacy in them. He saw something that might have been pity. The man walked toward the manor gates, half-dragging Crabtree as effortlessly as if the little clerk had been a throw-cushion. The fist that gripped his clothes felt like a solid knot of chilly iron. Standing at the gates, ignoring the murder all around them, the man stared down into Crabtree's face again, and then held his other long, simian arm out to point. The magistrate was stirring. Too far gone even to beg for mercy, Crabtree sagged in that iron grip. They hadn't killed him. Kate or Fish or Dor himself, whoever had meant to finish the job had failed. But no, they hadn't. They hadn't failed at all. Crabtree gaped at the magistrate's crushed skull, crushed throat, torn neck. He could not be alive. He should be dead, dead many times over. Crabtree's hearing filled with whispers again, and the black-clad man dropped him unceremoniously onto the ground. A pair of filthy, bony, bare feet stopped in front of his face. Powerless to do otherwise, Crabtree rolled onto his back and stared up into the bag that was bound over Jackdaw's face. Whether it was the whispers finally sliding into his ears, or something in the non-gaze of that covered face, or just his own mind finally making the connection. But Crabtree understood then. Jack Dor was not a force of just retribution. He did not come for sinners. He was no avatar of punishment. Jack Dor was guilt and madness. Torment of body and mind was what drew him. And when he found it, he would hurl himself at it, wallow in it, spread it, Dance, whisper, and laugh. Jack Dor was a living Charybdis, an undead star of matter so dense that minds broken by violence and guilt could not help but be drawn into his orbit, even drawn from beyond the grave. Jack Dor, Legea his herald, Montressa his eternal witness, and his carnival of the guilty dead whispered and pranced their way into the foggy night with the Magistrate of Stranglehold and Crabtree in tow, leaving Red Kate to weep wretched tears onto the bloody cobbles of the square. Jackie, Jackie, Jack, Daw goes ranging far and wide, and good folk run before his call, and mad folk run behind.
That's it for another episode of the Bridgeside Broadcast. Join us next time for more Tales of Malifaux.